And welcome back to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. And I'm really excited about this episode because not only am I interviewing a friend, but we're actually talking about something that we all deal with. Have you ever felt blindsided? It could have been in a relationship, it could have been at work, could have been at church, and something happened that you just didn't expect. I feel like it's in those moments that we see what we're made of, or we at least see where we're at. We see what we're experiencing in the moment because we can just dive right into fight or flight. We can freak out. We can lose our temper. We can do all sorts of things. But usually when we're blindsided, we have an opportunity to respond rather than react. But it's very easy to not take that opportunity. Dan was fired. Not only was he fired, Dan was fired in the most public way possible. Thousands of people were reading stories about how he was fired, and it was in that moment that Dan had a choice. He could either get super defensive and react, or he could respond in a way that was gracious. Today, I'm joined by Dan Darling. Dan is the author of several books, including his newest book, Agents of Grace, How to Bridge Divides and love as Jesus loved. He is also the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement, and he regularly contributes to World Magazine and USA Today. Dan, welcome to the Mercy Cast. Hey, I'm so glad to be on here, Raleigh. It's great to uh, great to talk to you and hang out. Yeah, I mean, it's been a little while since we've talked, so this is kind of a reunion of sorts. I'm really excited to dive into this because I've had this question in my mind, and I've never really asked you. So now we're doing it in front of all of our listeners. Millions (laughs) of people. Millions. And, you know, you're in this place where, I mean, I was in Colorado at the time. I was eating ice cream. It was delicious. And I actually talk a lot about ice cream on this podcast for some strange reason. That said, I'm eating this ice cream in Denver, and I get a text saying, How's your friend Dan? I don't know. He's probably fine. He goes, no, have you read this? And they start sending me links. And I immediately find out that you had lost your job. And so you're blindsided. You lose your job. What did you do next? What was your very next move after you heard publicly that you've lost your job? Well, it was just, it was surreal, the whole experience. It was in some ways disheartening. You know, if you've ever had a falling out with a friend or someone that you trusted or that you you loved and you were working together. It was surprising. You know, I'd written about far more controversial things, you know, for USA Today, World Magazine, other places, other places that are right. So everyone kind of knew that, that that's sort of what I do. When I wrote the piece on the vaccine, this was, you know, in sort of the late summer of 2021, there was a lot of conversation about how evangelicals are those backward anti-science evangelicals don't won't take the vaccine. What's their problem? Really wasn't true. I think there was hesitancy across all groups. And that was kind of the point of me writing that to say, hey, listen, you're trying to make the case, you know, looking down on people and dismissing their concerns is, is the worst way to do it. And here's why people are hesitant about the vaccine. This is what I said. You know, the public health, health officials have been told, sort of all over the map and there's widespread lack of distrust across all of our institutions. This is why people have 
you know, it's a new thing. People are going to be hesitant. Then I just said, nevertheless, here's why I got the vaccine. And I kind of listed several reasons like, you know, but I never said, hey, go get it. I just said, look, this is why I got it. Talk to your doctor. See if it's the right thing to do. Uh, we had just lost a piano teacher, a uh, family friend, mm. 50 years old. My my kids went to her. My son is a musician, went to her every week for seven years. You know, my so kids were devastated. It was in the moment. It was awful. So I'd written all that, but I was trying to have an appeal to like, hey, let's understand folks. Then I went on TV and talked about it. And actually, when I went on TV, it was funny. I was making the case that, look, let's try to understand people who have has disagreements. It's not widespread. Evangelicals are not all whatever conspiracy theories, all that stuff. In fact, when I was finished, the only negative feedback I got was not from people who were hesitant about the vaccine. It was actually, it was actually from sort of more progressive folks who said, why didn't you go on there and crush evangelicals? You guys are terrible. Trump, blah, 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 blah. I was like, okay, this is why you're not convincing people. I got a lot of feedback from people who said, man, I've been hesitant. I'm glad you didn't throw us under the bus. I'm thinking through all this. So that was really the only negative feedback I got from the public. I did that on a Wednesday, came in to work the following Monday and was like, hey, you're going to be let go. You violated our policy of neutrality, which we really didn't have because we had actually been pro-vaccine. We'd put out information about all that kind of stuff. So it was a hard moment. So first time in my life I've been let go from a job. So the, my first thought was, look, you know, I was like 43 years old at the time. I was like, I've had it pretty good in my life. This is the first time I've been laid off. I, you know, my dad during the Great Recession was laid off his job as a plumber. He had two years. We didn't really have meaningful work. A lot of folks have lost jobs. So I was like, okay, the Lord's been good to me that this is the first time this happened. Right. You know, and then I was just worried, you know, will I ever get hired again? What am I going to do? I'm trying to trust the Lord. I, you know, I reached out like I always do to people. I always, uh, whenever I'm in a crisis, I try to reach out to friends and get good advice. You know, you should never make big decisions when you're emotional. And so I didn't do that. I didn't intend for it to be public. You know, I, I just, no one wants to be fired in public. But somehow the news got out. That was sort of the second phase of handling, handling it, where it just, it became a viral news story. And when I, when I say it was a top news story, Raleigh, there were three stories, top stories in the summer of 2021, the late summer for those two weeks. Afghanistan, COVID, and me. <laughs> so it was just weird. I mean, it was, and every news outlet covered it. I, it was crazy. One of the things I decided in that moment was okay, the trend right now, when someone has something happened to them like this, is to sort of go on a revenge tour, to go on a public, I'm going to make them eat it. I'm going to get my pound of flesh. Sadly, this is real popular, even in evangelical circles, even with friends. I have good friends and I just, you know, and they, whatever, they may have reasons for doing that, but I just felt like I'm not going to do that. And so I'm going to put out a little statement about, I'm sorry this happened. We shouldn't be fighting. Christians shouldn't be fighting over these things. We should have unity. And, and whatever platform I have just to use to talk about Christian unity. And so I did that. You know, I felt like, okay, the Lord's given me this opportunity. How can I show forgiveness? How can I show unity? How can I show love for people? Francis Schaeffer talked a lot about unity. He said that God has given the world the right to judge the validity of our faith by the way we treat each other. And I'm like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So I just, 
And I really believe that. I mean, that, this is one of the reasons I wrote this book. The book is not really a memoir or tell-all. It's really just a plea to say, as Christians, what can, we can do better in terms of loving each other. What does it look like to love one another? Jesus said, this is a command I give you to love one another. And he's saying this to a motley crew of disciples. You know, one on the one hand is a sellout to Rome and, you know, Matthew. The other on the other end is, you know, Simon the Zealot, who's probably a couple clicks away from being a insurrectionist, puts them together and he says, hey, y'all need to love each other. Like, as I have loved you. And so I, what is it, what would it look like to do that in a very divisive age? You know, what would it look like to practice that? So that's sort of the motivation really behind this book and, and all that. So you lose your job and you're wondering, what am I going to do next? You're talking to different people, trying to get good counsel, but also you're not going to make a decision while you're emotional. And I think that is so important because we just look at social media mm-hmm. and something doesn't go our way and we just start firing off things. Yeah. And we may not feel that way once we've cooled down, but tweeting during fight or flight, probably not the greatest move. Yeah. Because the damage that we can leave in our wake can end us end up really hurting us for months or even years to come. And so in that moment, you kind of slowed down and that 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 had to have been hard because so many people are not only commenting and taking sides on what is affecting you and your family but they're probably also reaching out to you and you probably are tempted in your pain in that moment to clap back to basically say no now this is what happened and to defend yourself to prove yourself to show that you matter to go on a revenge tour as you said but you strive for this other place you you push for unity and how is this different than maybe the temptation just to be silent. The temptation to say, well, I don't want to cause any more issue. I'm just going to kind of push for unity. How did you draw the line between calling something out and not saying anything else out of fear? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First, I got advice, you know, and one of the things I, I haven't always I'm not the smartest guy and I haven't always made all the right decisions, but the one thing that I have tried to live by that's been helpful is when you're in a crisis to really, number one, don't make major decisions when you're in the middle and the thick of the crisis and you're emotional. Don't make a job decision. Don't make a move decision. Don't make a public, you know, what am I going to say decision? Also get good counsel from friends and uh, advice. I I've handled I've done a lot of PR and communications, but this was my own thing. So I reached out and got advice. How, what should I say? What, how should I do this? And then I think, you know, for me, I talk a lot in the book about forgiveness. In my life, I've had two major betrayals in ministry. And I'm talking hard things, not like annoying quirks that bother us about people that we should just forbear and overlook, but deep betrayals. And the first one was when I was in, in, uh, pastoring a church in Chicago area years ago. And I was an early, new ministry, young pastor. And I had a mentor say, look, I think you're right. And I think they're wrong. So I've got your back. But you need to learn. You need to work on forgiveness right now, which I don't like. You know, I like hearing the first thing. I don't like hearing the second thing. Oh, right. And I talk a lot in the book about forgiveness. And there's really, I think, three levels. I think the first is the basic level of releasing that bitterness 
And, you know, we can forgive because we've been forgiven by God through Christ. The debt that Christ has forgiven us is far bigger than any anything anyone's done to us. It's hard to believe that, but it's true. So we can forgive. What forgiveness is, it's not a one-time thing. It's a rhythm. It's a way of life. When Jesus tells Peter to forgive 70 times seven, he's not giving him a checklist or formula. He's giving him a, a pattern of life. So that every time that you drive past that house or that song comes on the radio or that memory floods your mind, you, you can offer that up to the Lord and say, Lord, please help me forgive. And I think it takes time. You know, time doesn't heal wounds, but I think time plus intentionality can heal wounds. And I will say, God has worked to give me peace about my situation, that first situation, to where I was able to actually go back to that people that hurt me years and years ago and have total peace and total forgiveness and no bitterness. And, and same thing with this NRB thing that God has worked on that. And I think you know that you've, you've released a lot of the bitterness when you stop wedging it into every conversation. I will say this, bitterness and unforgiveness is it's just a poison. I've seen people, I've seen leaders up close who cannot release their resentment and bitterness to the Lord. And it is, you know, it's like an acid that splashes on everybody else. It affects your relationships. It affects your leadership. If you can't let that go, and, and it's it's dangerous. So that's the first level. The second level is reconciliation, and that's not always possible. That takes two people. No, forgiveness is always possible. Reconciliation is not. I think we should pursue it where we can, but sometimes we can't. You know, Romans says to be at peace with all. You know, as much as li- lies within you, be at peace with all men. As much as you can. As much as up to you. Well, it takes two to reconcile, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes that doesn't. But I think we should pursue it. I think the third level is trust. So I might forgive someone, I may reconcile with someone. I may forgive someone. I'm sorry, I should forgive someone. I can release the, the bitterness. I can, I might be able to reconcile. Trust is an earned thing. And, you know, if the church treasurer runs off with the church funds, you're going to forgive them, forgive him, but you're not going to make them treasurer again, right? Right. Trust is earned. When I think of one of the stories that's helped me so much is the story of Joseph. What you in, when Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And you notice what he does there. He names the evil. He's standing in front of his brothers, who he's been with for years now in Egypt. And he doesn't say, Oh, I've forgiven and forgotten. You know, I you know, that time that you nearly killed me and trafficked me into uh, a foreign country. Yeah, that never happened. No, I mean, there's no way Joseph is ever going to forget that. No. And in fact, we, we actually forgive, be, we forgive because we can't forget. You know, um, forgiveness is a mechanism for us because we can't forget. But, but also the thing about Joseph that I never understood until when I got older was, why did he make his brothers go through this weird exercise? And now I get it. He was testing to see I've already forgiven them. I want to reconcile with them. Can I trust them? And that was that exercise. Oh, you know, I can trust them. So I think those we have, sometimes we collapse those three into one and we say, you need to forgive. Well, yeah, you should forgive, but that doesn't mean it's trust or reconciliation. So anyways, that, for me, that was so key. And I wasn't going to live the rest of my life trying to prove something to somebody, you know? I, and I also say, one more thing I'll say, is, look, I've been hurt by the church, by Christians, 
And church hurt is the worst hurt, right? Church hurt is always the worst hurt. But I've actually been helped and blessed far more by the church and Christians than I've been hurt. So when I, when I got fired, man, people were so good to me, Raleigh. I can't tell you. I cannot tell you how good people were to me when it became public. I mean, I had people sending me money. I had people making us meals. I had people in our church doing stuff for us. I had people offering me jobs. I, I mean, it's just, it was awesome what people did for me. So I actually have a chapter in this book about cynicism. There's a lot of cynicism about the evangelical church right now. It's, it's like a cottage industry. It's like its own genre. You know, evangelicals are this, evangelicals are terrible, they're this, they vote this way, whatever. And I just think, look, we need discernment, but cynicism is a different level. Cynicism is sort of refusing to see where God is at work. It's kind of a lazy way of thinking. And I think most Christians, most evangelical Christians are good people who love the Lord, trying to go to church, take care of their families. We're sinners. We have sin against each other, all that stuff. But anyways. So that was sort of my response. Sorry, I, I rambled on quite a bit there. You said something that stuck out to me. We forgive because we can't forget. Mm. I think that is so important because as you go through those three different stages, oftentimes when we think about forgiveness, we're thinking about like, well, if I really forgive this person, what does that mean for me? And maybe I'm not ready to forgive. And we almost think about it in this power dynamic. Like if I forgive, then then I lose power or I lose what have you. But it's really dealing with that poison that you said, that that bitterness. You're addressing it on your side because again, you're responding versus reacting. I think when we forgive, we're choosing to do that. That is not something that comes easily. That's not something that comes automatically. That is something that we have to intentionally choose and say, okay, I don't want to carry this anymore. I've allowed myself to carry it. I've felt it. I've felt my feelings. But now, now I'm going to do something with that. And it may not even involve the person. You may not go up to them and say, I forgive you. But you're, in a sense, saying, I don't want to carry this any longer. And I love how you speak to that with this eye to the rhythm of forgiveness. Yeah, it's yeah. a rhythm, almost like a muscle that has to be exercised. And I just really think it does take time. And there were there were years, a couple several years early on when I was hurt by uh, in that one particular way, where there were certain places I couldn't be, I couldn't see. You know, I, I wasn't ready to face like that. But over time, God worked on my heart, and I I can go back to those places. I can go back to those things, and I talk about. Uh, these, this in the book, you know, the story, but it doesn't mean we don't lament things that we lost. It doesn't mean we don't grieve hurts, but you know, if we're willing to practice that rhythm of forgiveness over time, it'll, it'll heal our hearts and we won't carry around resentment, man. There is, I have, I have seen bitterness and resentment destroy families destroy organizations, destroy people. Like, I think especially if you're a leader, you have got to practice forgiveness. 
because you will let it like you just have to. I, I think. I actually think a lot of our disputes among Christians today are public disputes. Some of them are important and worthy, and I have a whole chapter talking about worthy fights. There are things worth fighting, but a lot of our resentments are actually not arguments. It's uh, like a lot of our public disputes are not actually arguments. They're, they're resentment masquerading as courage, you know. So. Anyways, that, that's sort of what I've learned. And over time, God will heal your heart if you've been hurt, if you allow him to. Now, if you don't, it's not automatic. You know, you can, you can let bitterness fester and you can really, you, can, you know, and then you start hurting other people, right? The, the phrase that hurt people hurt people. So, Well, and it's an opportunity to take a step back and say, okay, so I may have experienced betrayal. I may have been hurt. And I can forgive. Because I was forgiven, you step back and you can kind of look at your cosmic relationship with God and how we have offended him, yet we are forgiven through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ in our place. And I think that that gospel motivation that you touch on, that frees us to enter into this forgiveness where we may be, we may be scared for a season to reconcile or we may just want to let that happen naturally to where there is, there, there might be a moment and we can connect with a person. But when we understand that it's the gospel that motivates that, that really addresses the identity piece. Because oftentimes when we're offended, we want to fight tooth and nail to prove that we are okay, yeah. that we matter, that we're whatever. But I think when, when that identity piece is kind of taken out of the way, then we're free to trust God. Yeah. And then if that relationship is something that we feel safe seeing heal, because it might not, it might not be good there's a, to, yeah. to go back. You know, it, there's a it lot of situations be, where it's not. And so right. reconciliation is conditional, you know, unforgiveness is always possible. But reckon and we can't rush it. You can't rush sanctification you can't rush healing you know you can't like it has to take its course while you're you know obviously you have to practice those things so we shouldn't push people beyond what where god is taking them i think it's okay if we're asked to tell our full story and defend ourselves when we've been wronged as long as we hold out the possibility that in every interaction, we may not have been perfect. And we have, you know, like we held out some humility, but it's okay to defend it. I mean, Paul in the book of Acts over and over again, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do that. Hey, I didn't do that. I did this. You know, it's okay to do that. When you're wrong, one of the ways you, where you can get frustrated and, and kind of go crazy is you're not going to, you have to just re- understand not everyone's going to believe your story. Right. There are going to be some good people who just don't believe your story. You can't convince every last person. And if you are obsessed with that, you will ruin yourself, right? I think of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Great demonstration, the prophets of Baal, all of his, most of Israel believes. Jezebel, the, the queen, and Ahab, the king, don't believe. So Elijah in 1 Kings 19, instead of being like, hey, all these people turn to faith and believe, here's these two that didn't. And he's obsessed with like wanting Jezebel. And it's like, not everyone's going to believe. Not everyone's going to take your story. That's okay. And not everybody, and this is a key thing, 
not everybody, your battle is not everyone else's battle. So you may have friends that defend you, and that's great. You can't expect everybody to engage your battle with the same energy that you that it exists in your heart and mind. There's going to be some people who are good people who are just not going to see your battle as their battle. And that's okay, right? Like, you just have to be, be at peace with that. So anyways, I think, you know, I, I, you just can't be someone who takes names. I know people, even Christian leaders who are like, I'm watching who's defending me and who's not. I'm watching who's saying good things and not. I'm watching who's quiet and who's not. Man, that's a carnal attitude. That's a, that's a secular way of thinking. Like, you know, you're, you're, the Lord's got you. If, you, if you're in Christ, you, as um, Kurt Thompson says, you know, if you're known by him and you know him, that's all that matters, right? Well, and it's interesting because when we look at things with this us and them mindset, we are always making lists. You yes. Know, it's like, and at that point, that is not gospel-centered at all. If anything, that is pure law. And it's not the mosaic law of God, but there's this idea of like, well, if you're not for me, you're against me, and I will destroy you as soon as I get some energy. But you look at that example that you gave of Elijah. He's not out there necessarily making a list. Yes, he's obsessing over those who are against him, and he's deeply hurt, and he's deeply betrayed. But God never let him flounder by himself. God met his needs, even when he couldn't meet his own needs, even when he couldn't feed himself. You got this flock of birds showing up with food and he's eaten and he's he's able to care for himself. And it's in those dark moments where we are hurt, where we have been betrayed, where we're starting to second guess ourselves. You know, I've been in situations where I'll look at something and be like, yeah, I made mistakes there. But I don't know if I'm 100 percent at fault either. And so I need to be good to myself in this moment. and really kind of say, God, where are you? In, El- in Elijah's story, God was very present, and the reader gets this really cool viewpoint of seeing God meet his need through the raven. But in your situation, it's very hard when you're in that situation to not miss the forest for the trees. You know, it's very hard to actually see where God has been at work. But now that you've been able to step back, how would you say God was ministering to you as you were experiencing that heartbreak? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. One, God, I, I really, there's some scary moments where I was like, what's going to happen? I had some really great friends who called me and reached out to me. I had a pastor, a well-known SBC pastor, who just you know, preached to me over the phone and said, man, there's no panic in heaven. God has got you. You're going to be okay. I had a lot of friends encourage me. I mean, my Southern Baptist friends were amazing. And, uh, but people from all over the country, I also saw, okay, maybe the Lord allowed this to give you somewhat of a platform to sort of try to model Christian unity, a kind of a, uh, you know, like a faithful engagement in the public square that is convictional, but not uncivil that, you know, sort of to to demonstrate that before the world, like, okay, here's an opportunity. What am I going to do with it? You know, I I think, you know, I think it was really, it was, it was really an interesting time, but a, but a sweet time that the Lord really visited us, you know, through, through good people 
and has taken care of us, you know? And, and look, I think the older you get, you're going to go through hard times and trials. All of us at some way are walking with a limp, right? I'm like in my forties, I'm like, okay, you know, the, the spirituality that you have is a little bit more tested and a little bit more weathered, but also more enduring. Like when I was younger, I had a lot of ideas and principles in theology, but it wasn't tested. You know, I still believe all those things, but now it's tested. And it's like, okay, if you really believe this, let's see how you believe it. If you go through all these things and which is why increasingly I really appreciate when I see a, like a senior saint who is, you can just tell they're, they've been through the fire, but they've emerged in a way that is gracious and humble and godly. And you, you know what I'm saying? There's a kind of grittiness. I think that that's what happens, right? Like we, God puts us through things to, to, to sort of help us grow in that way. Yeah. You go through the fire, you come out different. Mm-hmm. But again, there's that opportunity. We have this choice of, I can hold on to this and I can weaponize this and I can see this ending as an identity issue. And rather than face some really unpleasant truths, whether there's an element of truth in what happened or there isn't, we have to kind of come to grips with it and face it. And sometimes we double down and we miss, we miss that there is an opportunity there. I loved how your friend said that there's no panic in heaven, Mm. but you see it as this wasn't an end. This was an opportunity Mm -hmm. to do something else. And I think that is so beautiful because it's so easy to make this all about ourselves rather than really facing it, rather than owning our own issues and accepting what happened, changing what we need to change. Like I said, it's, it's very easy to kind of double down, push back, fight, but you're saying, okay, to quote Semisonic from that song Closing Time, Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. You see this as an opportunity. Definitely. I think it's also just, you know, God, uh, opportunity to trust, opportunity to see the people around us trust. And, you know, um, the willingness to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to like make this my thing the rest of my life. It may be on, it may be in my story, but I'm not going to like, I think sometimes people And I guess it depends kind of on your story. For some people, the hurt is a significant thing that there's a useful way to say, I'm going to use this to help others, right? I think John Erickson Todd or other other folks. But I think, you know, if we've been wronged by someone to kind of make that our whole platform for the rest of our lives and wedge it into every conversation. And really, I wanted to talk about Christian unity and what it is, what it isn't. Uh, what are things, I think part of the problem is today, you know, Christians don't have an understanding of what are the good fights, what are the things worth fighting for, and what are the things not worth fighting over, right? Um, Paul says to Timothy in First Timothy, to fight the good fight, like there's a body of truth that's been handed down to you that we, we must protect and treasure. Uh, Jude says to defend the faith once delivered to the saints. There's a body of truth that is precious, that, that, is, that we cannot depart from. But then Paul also says it's, in 2 Timothy, 
avoid stupid and foolish arguments. So we have to discern what is the good fight and what are stupid and foolish arguments where we disagree with people. We have different opinions, but we say, okay, they're different opinions. I disagree with you on that. Okay. We love each other. We're good friends, right? I think in these divisive times, we have to be intentional about that and say, I'm not going to let this moment, this political moment, this season get in between my best friendships. I, I really lament the way that a temporary political moment, a temporary political figure, we have too many have allowed that to destroy lifelong friendships. Absolutely. It's like, why are we I'm doing this? about marriages that ended based on people's views of vaccines? Yes. And it's like, this moment's going to pass, and so will this figure. But I'm not going to let go of these friendships over this, right? So I just think, what are the good fights? I think when we fight, I think when we take time and energy to fight the foolish fights, we take time and energy away from the good fights. Well, and how do you discern between what is good and what would be foolish? Well, I think, first of all, for a Christian, when we're talking about theological things, you know, the witness of the church for 2000 years and you know, what is sort of the um, Christian orthodoxy, we would say, the, the key core doctrines of the Christian faith that, that have been handed down to us that we don't have the authority to edit and change. They're what's true and good and beautiful about who God is and who we are. Um, versus like secondary and tertiary issues that Christians have always disagreed on, right? And so there are, for instance, you know, think of like the way that denominations uh, organize. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Baptist convictionally. Uh, I have good friends. Some of my heroes are Presbyterians. We disagree on baptism, disagree on church polity. We're not going to do church together. It's okay, but we can do a lot together. You know, we, we agree on the gospel together. You know, my Lutheran church, Missouri Synod friends, my assembly God friends, we're not going to do church together. We disagree on that. But on the, on the big thing of orthodoxy, we agree and we can do much together. Um, but then there's tertiary. Yeah, things have that, unity there. What's that? And you have unity there. Yeah, you can have. I mean, I think the way we think about it, you know, the way we triage these things and say, there's a lot I can do with folks who agreed with me on Christian orthodoxy, but disagree on the secondary things. Mm -hmm. We may not do yeah. organize, you know, and it's okay that we organize differently. That Tim Keller was one of my heroes. Absolutely one of my heroes. He could not have been a member at our Baptist church and I couldn't have been a member at his and that's okay. But man, there's so many things that we can do together, you know? Um, but then there's tertiary things that even in the same congregation, even if we agree on a, a lot of things that we may disagree on that, you know, the, uh, the end eschatology, you know, we all agree Jesus is coming soon, but when is that, what's that going to look like or how old the earth is or even, even beneath that preferential things like how do we educate our kids or, you know, how do we exactly practice our politics or, you know, what do you think of the Barbie movie? Whatever. It's like, we can disagree, and yet I think sometimes we're dividing over those things. Like, I'm going to separate from you because you have a different opinion on this, versus like really fighting and championing the core things of, of the gospel of Christian orthodoxy, right? So we have, to, we have to practice having friendships where you disagree. I mean, look, I have right. friends. I yes. have friends. And there's a couple of things that I think they're crazy on. And over here, you know, 
And I have other friends over here that I think they're no crazy on them, but, but, but I love those guys. And sometimes I'm the crazy uncle that they think I'm nuts on a thing or two. It's okay. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Well, I think it's so important because so much of what you're describing has to do with identity. It's like we can scrap for identity, but when that is taken care of, when it's rooted in the gospel, it kind of frees us to take a step back and really examine what's happening. And we don't do this perfectly, right? We don't do this perfectly, but you know, everything is so polarized right now. Yes. You're either right or you're left or you're this or you're yeah. that. And, and everything. so many. Yeah. And it's almost like we we divide. These dividing lines are so sharp now that if we just say the wrong thing, certain people will push past us rather than say, could you tell me, like, what's your reasoning here? Or help me understand your point of view. I may not agree with it, but help me understand. Because our loyalties, they've become very tribal in some ways. Like, we we ascribe to certain things and and our our loyalties like if you if you go against something i believe in i don't have time for you you're not one of my people right it's this us and them mindset but i found like i have friends that they may be on one side or the other and i may agree or disagree with them but i've found by keeping these folks I mean, as long as they're not like the most annoying person right. in your life and they don't actually care about you, they just care about proving a point. Like, I don't really have time for that. But I do have time for someone who may passionately articulate a point that I vehemently disagree with. But in hearing them out, I'm able to look at it and be like, you know, what are some things that I can take from that? What are some good things? Because it doesn't have to do with my identity. At this point, that person doesn't have to agree with me to be my friend. Right. And I might take some good things that I'm not going to hear in an echo chamber. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I think uh, we have to have that sort of way of thinking about our friendship. And understand, look, everyone's not going to be our best friend. Jesus had the multitudes. Then he had the 12 and then he had Peter, James and John. He had close. You know, it's, it's okay to have not everyone's going to be your, your best friend, your bestie. Um, but I do think having respect and love for other people, even if they disagree. And when we do make public arguments or, or whatever that we respect people and not assume, you know, one of the things you know, I talk about, what does love require? You know, Christians love each other. One of the is benefit of the doubt. Doesn't mean we're naive. Doesn't mean we paper over corruption. But we don't assume everybody is coming from a position of malice. You know, that they're, you know, you know we, we, we try to give people the benefit of the doubt, which is not something that sort of the social media culture really affords. Like, there's no benefit of the doubt, right? You're either a hero or a goat every day. And, you know, something's either the greatest or the worst of, of all time. And I think we have to be more nuanced than that. Giving people benefit of the doubt is very difficult in a polarized society, right? Yeah. And it's also, it's not really good for hot takes either. Like when you're like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe that person is not a monster. Let me try to understand. Yeah. No, that's not, that doesn't sell. No, it doesn't. And there's incentives, unfortunately, 
on all sides to like to not give people the benefit of the doubt, right? There's in- perverse incentives against that. And I think we have to resist that and say, no, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. Absolutely. And I don't know how I want to approach this. Yes, I do. Here we go. What are a couple of pieces of advice you would give our listeners today who are wrestling with forgiveness? And they may have been hurt in a relationship or in a job. And they're thinking through, what's my next step? How would you guide us? I think your next step is to commit yourself to seeking forgiveness and the practice of forgiveness, to, to ask the Lord to really help you work on work on that and to, to not see the other person as a total monster, but as some you know, people are a mix of good and bad and, and commit to the, commit to the rhythm of forgiveness. You're not going to have, you're not going to, it's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to have good feelings overnight. It's not going to, but God over time can heal your heart and work on your, and so I think the next step is to say, Lord, how can you help me forgive? I think also to talk with good friends. And help you get outside of yourself and outside of your situation. You know, I think isolation can breed bitterness and disconnect, get discontent, you know? Oh, that's helpful. Because you're right. You know, isolation, when we're just listening to one view, often ours, and we're just listening to our own pain, we don't have those really discerning voices speaking in saying, okay, let's take a step back. Yeah. And so... Dan, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Raleigh. Great conversation. Love the work that you're doing, of course. And and, uh, really, really great stuff. I enjoyed it. If you are interested in more conversations like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. If you want bonus episodes, as well as a plethora of other resources, become a paid member at lmpg.org for $10 a month. You will get access to our bonus podcast, More Mercy, where we dive deeper. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. We want to hear from you, so you can email us at info at mercycast.com. Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.